Hey everyone, I'm Jana Panaritas, and you're listening to the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to keep up with the demands of your own life, you're also caring for a parent or your partner or maybe a child with special needs? Well, we're here to help. Each week we hear from professionals in the field of aging and people like you, caregivers sharing their stories and tips for staying sane. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. What would you do if one of your parents had an incurable disease that could be passed on to you? Would you get tested to find out if you were also going to get the disease? Or would you leave your fate to chance? Melissa Bilchik faced this dilemma when her mother was diagnosed with Huntington's disease, for which there is currently no cure. Around the time her mom was diagnosed, Melissa launched her blog, Grown Up Pains which is targeted at millennials like her who, quote, secretly have no idea what they're doing. Joining us from Los Angeles is Melissa Bilchik. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I probably read all of your posts, and it was fascinating. I'm so glad I went back to the beginning because it's really an incredible journey. So you grew up in a tiny town in Maine, as you said. You hated high school. You finished college early so you could move to L.A. and start working. Why the rush, and what did you do once you got to L.A.? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I grew up in a little town in Maine, and it was, you know, what you would picture in Maine, super idyllic, um, right on the coast. Our, our school mascot was the yachtsman, so that really shows you, <laughs> wow. shows you how, you know, nautical we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great. You know, it was a great, safe childhood. But I think I always knew it really wasn't for me and that I I didn't fit there for some reason. So I took the first chance I got and moved out to L.A. while I was still in college, actually, and interned and interned at MTV and interned at Paramount. And then from there, got my first job and then just stayed there. Um, Really fell in love with L.A. Oh, so So I worked. Yeah. Yeah. So so you do you dropped out of college? No, I graduated early. I oh, was, I see. Um, was able to kind of, you know, take more classes than usual and mm-hmm. take summer classes and use internship credits and graduated early and moved out and worked mostly in casting and a little bit of PR and just kind of did the grind of like early 20 something, you uh-huh. know, working long hours and putting everything into my career. In one of your blog posts, you wrote about in 2011, you were living in LA, you were engaged to be married, and you started to notice changes in your mom. At that point, your parents had split, and your mom had traveled west to Hawaii and other destinations. And you were in LA, as I said, engaged to be married, started to notice changes in her. What changes did you notice? And what was the turning point? Yeah, I think growing up, my mom was really that normal PTA supportive mom and very soft spoken, Mm -hmm. very sweet. And just what you would picture of like a suburban mom, just just a great parent and behind us and at every activity. And, you know, I think it's hard living across the country from your family, as you know, Um, you're not seeing the day to day, you're seeing more snippets and phone calls, and it doesn't really give you a full view of who they are. So for me, I started seeing more actually online, which was funny through my mom, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, kind of bizarre Facebook posts, bizarre Mm -hmm. emails, things that were totally out of character for her, just a little aggressive and angry, very, very angry. 
And so for me, I was a little confused. I thought, you know what, maybe she's going through a midlife crisis. And she got married to my dad when she was 22 and was a stay-at-home mom primarily. So I thought kind of in my head, okay, maybe this is her time where she's like, all right, I'm divorced. I'm in my 50s. I'm going to speak my mind and speak my truth. And I was very confused by it, but Uh I thought maybe this is just what she needs to do. So she moved a few times, Arizona and Hawaii and California. And again, I kind of was like, all right, she's maybe going through this weird midlife crisis. She wants to travel. She she didn't get a chance to do that. She didn't get a chance to really go to college or go abroad or, you know, do any of the things that I did. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought maybe she was going through some sort of midlife crisis. And um, it really wasn't until my wedding where a lot of her family had seen her for the first time in a few years. And that's when they all said to me, I, I think it's Huntington's. Huh. So they noticed changes in her behavior at the wedding? Yeah, I think a lot of them, um, you know, for her, her family was really spread out around the country. So day to day, especially with her traveling, nobody was seeing her on a regular basis. So when you see somebody after two years, and all of a sudden, they're acting different, they're walking a little different and talking a little different. I think it was jarring for them. And I think a lot of them had grown up seeing my mom's mom, my, my maternal grandmother, go through Huntington's and see, I see. How those changes in her and what happened. So I think it was a little, probably a little scary for them to see that. Right. They had a reference point for the exactly. specific disease. So when was your mom given the actual diagnosis and how old was she? And tell us a little bit about Huntington's disease. Yeah. So Huntington's is a genetic disorder. People call it a combination of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's at the same time. So it involves your brain breaking down. It's cognitive thinking and muscle coordination and psychiatric problems. And so if your parent has the disease, you have a 50-50 chance of having it as well. So most people start developing symptoms between 35 to 50, and then the disease itself lasts anywhere from 10 to 15 to sometimes 20 years, depending on how severe you have it. So eventually you don't actually die of Huntington's, you die of complications of Huntington's. (laughs) So it's really, it's a lot. It's not one of those that most people know about, and I didn't know about it until mm-hmm. this all happened. So it's, it's a lot, and it's different for everybody. Some people start experiencing a lot of the physical things first. Some of them are more, like my mom was more psychiatric uh-huh. um, at first. And how old was she when she was diagnosed? She was officially diagnosed in 2013. Mm-hmm. So she was 56. I think she had probably had some symptoms for probably around like four years. And that would explain some of her her behavior, her, you know, really erratic, angry behavior that just wasn't her at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And how did she react to the diagnosis? And how did you react? I think it was hard because it was, as I said, at my wedding where it first was brought to my attention. Because, again, I kind of thought that maybe she was going through a weird midlife crisis. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that something was medically wrong with her. I thought maybe she was just being selfish. And it wasn't until after the wedding when a relative told me that she should probably get tested. And it might be the reason why she was acting that way. So I asked her, I said, you know, for my sake, I just got married. We want to have kids eventually. Would you be tested? 
And she said, of course, of course. And that was the moment where I saw my mom again, you know, with hmm. just that love and that the protection. Of, of course, I'll do that for you. And she still had pieces of that at that time. So she was tested and the testing process is pretty awful because it's a waiting game. And you, I think it's three weeks where you sit there and you don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have to go into the office and find out those results. And she didn't cry. I remember sitting in that room and she just, she heard the news and was like, okay, we'll fight this. And she wasn't scared. And I was bawling because I knew, you know, I knew what this meant for her. And I knew there was no coming back from Huntington's. Mm -hmm. And I also knew that it's a 50-50 chance that I had it and a 50-50 chance that my brother had it too. So it's, it's kind of like a punch in the gut because you're like, God, this is the end of life as I know it and possibly the end of my life as I know it. So it was it was really, really hard. And it was really hard to accept that that was kind of the end of the road. There's no cure and there's no real medication that that's that helpful. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're hopeful that in the future there will be. But at this point, it's kind of it's the end. Mm-hmm. So I think for my mom at that point, I don't know if she was in denial or if she was unaware, but she was a little more in denial so that she she said, okay, well, this is great because I don't even have any symptoms yet. So she either didn't see that she had symptoms or was in denial that she had symptoms. Uh-huh. Um, so it kind of progressed very quickly after that because I, I was realizing that, okay, she she doesn't have the capacity to see what's happening to her. She doesn't understand so very quickly, we had to take away the car. It, it, it happened very quickly after she was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. She was living in an apartment building, as I recall in your writing. And yeah. uh, something happened where you realized that this is a real turning point and you decided she could no longer live on her own. Yeah, I, I was at work and I remember getting a call from her landlord and it was essentially an eviction, which is crazy to me because my mom had never gotten in trouble in her life. And she was just a normal, suburban, happy person. And this was in Los Angeles. Your mom was living in LA? This was actually in Orange County. In Orange County. She lived a lot. No, (laughs) okay. Well, that's um, okay. I'm just going to give the listeners a sense of where we are now with where your mom is living. In Orange County, which is for... Orange County. Right, about 90 miles south of LA, correct? Correct. Thereabouts. She was in, in La Jolla. And the landlord essentially was like, she's just disruptive. She's bothering everyone. She is sending them notices. She would, I guess, write out these letters, really crazy letters to all the neighbors, accusing them of, you know, awful things, just things that weren't existing. It was all kind of in her head and she would build up this paranoia. So it was very, very interesting, the things she would come up with and she would fixate on. And that felt like really a turning point for me because, as I said, I didn't live with her. So I didn't know how she was day to day. And I thought, okay, you know, maybe she's doing okay. You know, we took away the car and she can walk and get her groceries. And I started to take over some of the the finances because I realized it was a little too confusing for her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw it and I was naive to think so that she was okay. And as long as I had control of the finances and control of kind of where she was, she would be able to handle it. And I was totally wrong. And that was the, the turning point for me to realize, okay, this is not just her getting older and her needing some help. This is a disease and she needs more help than what I thought. 
So they were very sweet about it. And I, I'm a big crier. So <laughs> I kind of broke down to them on the phone and was like, I'm sorry, this isn't her. This isn't like what happened. And I, I told them about Huntington's. They were very understanding mm-hmm. and worked with us to, to give us a timeline to move her. And I moved her to stupidly a 55 plus community because I thought that, okay, maybe they can kind of look after her and, you know, there's a bus that takes her to the grocery store. And I thought that might be a good thing that lasted probably three months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was independent living? Like, yes. Independent living okay. um, before they were like, this is above our pay grade. So again, had to move her very quickly. Again, they were very sweet about it. Very understanding. I cried a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you cried your way through that one too, had, huh? Oh. Yeah, I cry a lot. <laughs> had to move her again, moved her to assisted living, where again, I thought, okay, this is it. This is the time where this is going to work for us. This is going to be a perfect thing. And that's when I moved her closer to us in Los Angeles. Because at that same time, I had just birthed my twins. Uh So, So I had limited time to travel and drive in the car and all that. And again, lasts about three months. And then we finally found a memory care facility for her. And it's been awesome. Oh, that's good. It's been perfect. Oh, that's great. Well, let's get right to your decision or not to get tested and talk about about your process and uh, how that unfolded for you. Yeah, I have always been a planner and I like to know what's going on and I, I like to have everything set out for me. And so for me, when my mom was diagnosed, it was 100% for me. I wanted to know. I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to be prepared in ways that I wasn't prepared when, when it happened to my mom. I wanted my family to know what was going on. And I wanted to have that communication with doctors. And I wanted to just be able to kind of look at my future in a way that was realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had it, mm-hmm. then I wanted to know my timeline. And if I didn't have it, of course, I would pop bottles of champagne, (laughs) I would be so thrilled. And so for me, it wasn't a question of whether I wanted to be tested. I think for me, I had to go through a little bit of counseling, which everybody who's tested for HD has to go through just to make sure you are emotionally prepared Mm -hmm. for this knowledge because it's a lot to have. Even before you get tested? Mm -hmm. They want you to go through that because some Mm. people, you know, it's a lot for you to know that. And then I think they want you to know exactly what you are learning. So I went through a little bit of counseling and did the test, which is a simple blood test. Mm -hmm. And three weeks later, they call you in for your results. And for me, unfortunately, I have the HD gene and I know that I will develop Huntington's in my life. And that's not a question. It's it's a hundred percent. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot to walk around, and it changes you as a person. It changes your priorities. It makes you look at life in a different way when you realize that nothing is given. And I think for some people like me, it was a necessity to know that. And for some people, they don't want to know. My brother hasn't been tested. and I was going to ask about that. And he's your only sibling, yeah. right? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's just the two of us. Younger or older? And how old are you? So I am turning 30 next month. Mm-hmm. When I found out, when I was tested, I was 26. And my brother is three years younger than me. Okay. And he does not want to be tested. He does eventually. 
I think for him, he lives in Chicago where he, you know, has a group of friends, but he doesn't have any family. And he, he saw me go through it. So I think he realizes that it's a lot emotionally and hopefully he does not have it. And I think in my head, even though it doesn't make any sense, I'm like, well, I have it. So he shouldn't have it. Scientifically, that doesn't make sense at all. I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> but you try to think, okay, I'm taking one for the team. He can't have it too. So I think he realizes that he needs more of a support system before he goes through that. And uh-huh. and at the same time, I when I was tested, I was newly married thinking of kids and he is not at that point yet. So I think for him, he's like, why have that knowledge if I don't need to use it quite yet? Well, makes yeah. sense. It's such an individual thing, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's many, many people out there who have not been tested and probably never will be tested because it's, it's a lot to hear about. And I, I completely understand it now that I've been on the other side of it. I think before I was tested, I didn't understand it. And it would make me so mad when people didn't get tested because I was like, how could you do that to your family and um, not prepare people? And that's, completely selfish and it wasn't until after I was tested that I understood like of course there's some days where I'm like I really wish I didn't know this Mm -hmm. I really wish I could just be a normal person Mm -hmm. but you know you make that decision and you can't take it back yeah and it's courageous now tell us I know you have got twins and they're so adorable (laughs) tell us how the results uh, affected your approach to getting pregnant Yeah, that was one of my main things. Besides preparing myself and and knowing kind of my plan for life, I didn't want my children to have this worry that I had. And of course, you know, you're optimistic about the future and that there's going to be a cure and that even if they had the gene, you know, they'll just take a pill and it'll be totally fine. Uh Um, But at the same time, I just never wanted them to know this feeling. So thank God there is genetic testing, which is amazing. So we went through IVF with my kids with genetic testing. So essentially, it's the full IVF, taking the eggs out, fertilizing them, and they take out little tiny cells and Mm -hmm. send it off to the lab to be tested. And it's interesting, we had 11 embryos, Mm -hmm. and six of them had the gene and five of them were healthy. Wow. Which is, you know, if it's a 50-50 thing, it's Right. Makes sense. That is so fascinating. It makes total sense. Yeah. So we were able to implant the healthy embryos. And now I know that my kids will never have this disease. Their kids, you know, it's it's gone from our bloodline, which Uh was my goal of just having it be done. Wow. How did your husband react to all this and journey with you? It sounds like he's a great guy. And (laughs) you have a very supportive relationship. Yes. He is great. I mean, I really couldn't ask for anybody better. And I feel bad for him. And I say to him all the time, it's like, I'm really sorry. This happened after we got married. You were stuck, huh? You really really didn't have a choice in this one. Um, So I I do feel bad for my brother in that way. We were kind of already, we were in it. But, you know, as he's dating, as my brother's dating, he will have the unfortunate task of having that big conversation with whoever that person is. Yeah, and that's Um, a really significant difference that you didn't know when you were dating your now husband about this whole thing. And that's a really big burden for him, too. It's better that you didn't know, yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> no, yeah, I, it, it's an interesting situation. It really just kind of unfolded after our wedding. So my husband is great. He is 
such a support for me. And he is able to, first of all, he uses humor a lot. As I said, I'm a crier. So <laughs> he's able to calm me down and use humor and, and really bring me back down and say it's okay. And I think a big help for him was that, unfortunately, his grandfather was bipolar, which obviously isn't the same as Huntington's, but there's a lot of the psychiatric similarities. So he was able to very easily say, this isn't your mom. This is a disease and this is something that's happening in her brain. This isn't her being malicious or being, you know, hurtful towards you. This is something that she can't control. So that was really, really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> say. Um, yeah. And, and the, just the fact that he's been through something like that and it wasn't a total shock for him to go through something like this. Mm -hmm. And the other thing he did was there were certain occasions before my mom was on meds where she was in hospitals under psychiatric holds. And this was around the time I had just given birth to my babies and I was emotional and hormonal and dealing with all of this. And I just, I couldn't go to the hospital and see her. I just couldn't see her in that bed. I couldn't mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who went and he was there. And I think it's different when it's your mother-in-law. Yeah. It's, you know, of course it's jarring and scary, but at the same time, it's not your blood and I think it was easier for him to be there than it was for me. Mm -hmm. So you wrote about the stress of becoming a new mom to twins while at the same time becoming a caregiver for your mom. And I love that you refer to your blog as writing from the jagged edge of motherhood and <laughs> faking it till you make it. You're not a Pinterest mom. What does that mean, by the way? <laughs> it's a great phrase. And I think especially in this day of age, you know, everybody is on Instagram and Pinterest and you see these impossibly perfect shots of babies and beautiful clothing eating these like gourmet multi-grain sprout sandwiches. <laughs> and like, let's be honest, that's just not me. Um, and so I, I think for some people, it, you know, your children are your everything. And, and for me, it, they are. They hundred percent are. I love them with everything I am, but at the same time, you can't take yourself so seriously. You really just, you really can't. And this job is way harder than most people ever imagined it to be. Uh -huh. So for me, I am very open and very honest about, you know, there are many days that are just so overwhelming and I cannot believe that these two little people rule our house. <laughs> they really do. Uh -huh. And how um, old are they now? So they're two and a half. Okay. And they're in preschool right now as we're having this conversation. Is that correct? Oh, yes. The joy <laughs> of preschool. <laughs> they are in school and they love it. It's great for them. They're very, very social kids. Uh -huh. um, and you have so a boy they, and a girl, we should it. say. They're twins, but they're a boy and a girl, right? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Teddy and Lily, they are just crazy and wild and so funny at this age, just saying like the craziest things. Uh -huh. But they are, they are wild and twins is just, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> no doubt. So you wrote, quote, as millennials, we face our own set of caregiving struggles. Can you give me an example of how millennials differ from baby boomer caregivers? Okay. I mean, for me, the major thing is that you feel a little more isolated, I think. I think most caregivers feel isolated, that they're the only people in the world doing this, mm -hmm. which obviously they're not. But when the average caregiver is, is a boomer, and you're sometimes half the age of that, it, it definitely feels a little more isolated for me. You know, you go to a lot of these support groups or, you know, even online support forums, that kind of thing. And it's hard 
when you're so much younger and you just have less life experience, you know, it's like, I'm just trying to figure out how life insurance works for myself Mm -hmm. and, you know, health insurance works for myself. And then adding that to my mom, it's kind of like you're learning so quickly about all these different programs and you just feel a little more isolated. You don't have your peers to lean on. Most of your peers are just trying to figure out their own life and not really at that point where they're dealing with a parent. So it's a, a little isolating. You're you're a little bit alone in that. And I think another thing is that you're trying to figure your life out. You're trying to lay that out. And of course, at every age, you know, there's a different milestone. And But I think when you're just trying to find out who you are as a person, it's it's hard to be a caregiver because you're trying to be a new mom and be a new wife and figure out your career and then be a caregiver on top of that. One of the other things is that, especially for millennials, I won't lie, you know, a lot of millennials led this sweet, idyllic childhood, which I did as well. And I don't fault my parents for it. Of course, they're, they wanted to do the right thing and make sure I was happy and, and all of that. But you're kind of raised under the assumption that bad things don't happen mm-hmm. to normal people. Yeah. And because I didn't know about Huntington's as a child, it it kind of sets you up for failure almost in a way mm-hmm. as a millennial because you're like, okay, you know, I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to be, you know, this happy person and live like this normal grown up life. And no one prepared you that shitty things happen. So that was that was another part where, you know, being a millennial, it's oh, I, I hate the phrase millennial because I it's kind of it's very negative. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, those darn millennials. But we were kind of set up for failure, you know, and, and now becoming a parent myself, I know you're just trying to do the best you can and trying to do everything that your parents didn't do in a way. So I'm sure my parents were just reacting how they thought I would want and what, what was appropriate. But again, it, it kind of sets you up for failure. You're not prepared for tragedy. Yeah. Where do you find support? Where do you turn to for support besides your husband? Yeah, I mean, at first it was really hard for me because when it all was going down, I was very open about it. I had the blog and would send it out really just to friends and family, just just more of as a, hey, as an FYI, this is what's happening. And also I got sick of repeating myself over and over again on mm-hmm. on the phone to different relatives and different to friends. It was just yeah, um, emotionally a lot to repeat the story over and over again. So it was more of like, for me, an outlet to express myself and to let everybody know what was going on with me so that they can just call and say, oh, I, I read what was going on then just to let you know I'm here. And then that starts to fade a little bit. You don't want to be a broken record. So I think human nature to just say, oh, everything's okay. Mm -hmm. And we're figuring it out. And when people ask, you know, how you're doing, you say, oh, I'm great. I'm actually really awful. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was hard at first for me to find support. And I internalized a lot of it. And at the same time, I had my two little newborn twins when a lot of this was going down. So I was just kind of crazed and surviving. And I think that's when you're first going through it, you're just surviving. You're going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until more recently that I started becoming more involved once things started slowing down and the kids slept through the night a little bit. And so now I'm a board member of the Huntington's Disease Society of America, Mm -hmm. the LA chapter, which is great because there's an annual walk and it really, 
gets me involved with the community in a positive way instead of just always kind of being negative. And then my husband and I, I guess, are, are involved in Hilarity for Charity, which mm-hmm. is Seth Rogen and, and Lauren Rogan's Alzheimer's Foundation, which is, again, another fun way to be involved without it having, having to be so down. Right. And then for me, it's been really good um, having my blog and, and just recently getting more into that now that the kids are in preschool and I have a little bit of time having that. And for me, I have a hard time with support groups. It's hard for me as a millennial to go to support groups and and see, again, as we talked about, people twice my age. And it's very sweet and people are always, you know, trying to be nice and and sweet. And I understand that. But it makes me feel even worse sometimes about Mm -hmm. my situation Mm -hmm. because I think in my head, okay, well, obviously there's no there's no good part about dementia at all. But I think in my head, okay, these people got to live like a lot of their lives. They've really, you know, yeah, that's a really good point. Having grandchildren and mm-hmm. they've got to experience traveling and all this. And it's cut short for me and it's cut short for my mom. So it makes me a little more sad. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to target more people in my peer group. And Hilarity for Charity actually does a Google Hangout, which I just started doing, which is a video chat of just, you know, millennials going through this type of thing and that's been helpful just doing more more support groups of people my own age because I think that's really what we need yeah I think that's a really interesting point that you make about support groups primarily being comprised of people who have had a chance to live a fuller life before facing what they're facing not in all cases I mean you know hate to generalize, but it's a really good point. I've interviewed several people in your demographic, and one of my friends, she's 31, I've interviewed her, and she said, you know, the only people who use the word millennials are baby boomers. (laughs) I know, know, it's so funny. But I guess there's a category for everything, and we all have to be categorized in some way or another. You wrote that as a caregiver for your mom, you feel like a fraud, and how uncomfortable you are with being told you're an inspiration or a, a superhero. Why is that? What's difficult about hearing that? Of course, you know, everyone's trying to be nice. But for me, it's it's not a position I picked. And for most caregivers, it's not something you do out of the goodness of your own heart. You're like, (laughs) okay, this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to. And so for me, when I hear that, it kind of eliminates any feelings out of it. It kind of is like, okay, well, you're amazing. And you're, you're doing this and you're having a great time. And you're, you know, you never break down and you're never sad. So for me, it's, it's hard to hear that because, again, I didn't choose this. So, and again, I think it goes back to that whole millennial life where you think everything is perfect and that tragedy really happens to these, like, inspirational people who, you know, I think I did a blog post about this, people who, who don't swear and they just are angelic and wonderful and I don't feel that way about myself. I think a lot I, um, of caregivers don't feel that way. I'm kind of sick of it. No. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like sometimes I just want somebody to say, wow, you're in a shitty situation. I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah. Or um, even ask what that involves. Thing. What does it involve being right. a caregiver? Right, right. And so I think it's hard because you try and think, okay, this is what I should do. This is what people in tragedy do and this is how they should act. And I think for a long time, I did just that. Hmm. I read the books and, and mm-hmm. thought I was going to like join a new religion that, you know, did all that kind of thing. <laughs> well, of course, yeah, you would want to find some way of surviving and you'd grab onto some tools. So 
Right. And I totally get why people do that. But at the end of the day, I was like, you know what, this isn't me. And I think you find out that it, even though you go through tragedy, you're still sometimes just a normal person. You're not just like this angelic superhero person. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's hard to hear those kind of things, because you're like, yeah, you should see me like bawling my eyes out. And right. <laughs> I don't think superheroes do that or you know just like swearing or like watching trashy reality tv you're human and you're a normal person and so hearing that kind of thing you're just like oh come on like i'm really not a superhero at all uh-huh the other comment i hear most often is guilt and you actually wrote a recent piece breaking the cycle of denial with genetic diseases and your first line is sometimes i feel myself i find myself in a spiral of guilt i look at my two little babies and my husband and i just feel awful for them Guilt is a really common emotion that I hear uh, in the course of interviewing folks. So why is it so hard to let go of guilt? I think, you know, you're just trying to do the best you can. That's what everybody is trying to do the best they can. But it's hard because you're trying to be everything for everybody. Is that a female thing? um, Maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you're trying to be the perfect parent and wife and perfect career. And I think it's especially nowadays, it's really hard to just do it all and nobody does. And so for me, the guilt comes from, first of all, having to be a parent to my parent and think, okay, what is what would she want me to do? And, and is this the, the appropriate thing to do? And because she's in a memory care facility, I ultimately, it's been the best. It's the only choice for us. I could not have her living in my house. I could not do that. I know that some people, they don't have a choice or that's what they choose to do. But for me, this is the best case scenario that that she's in a memory care facility. But with that said, that doesn't mean I don't feel guilt when I hear other people's stories of how their parents live with them and how they're with them all the time. So I, I do feel guilt in that way. And then I also feel guilty when I'm there you know, am I spending enough time? Is this the appropriate place for her? Um, How often do you see her? I see her at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Mm -hmm. And we we talk on the phone, but I I end up spending at least one day with her and and bringing the kids over most of the time or Mm -hmm. taking her out to like Target or a restaurant. She can still do that. Mm -hmm. That's good. And how do your kids interact Uh, with her? Do they see her as sick? Not yet. Okay. Um, it's interesting. They're at a really interesting age because they're two and a half and they're just starting to figure out social norms and realize that some of the things that go on at, they call my mom Bubby, at Bubby's house Aww. are not normal. So I took them over for Passover last week. They had they had a Passover at, at her place. And um, a woman sitting across from us who had some form of dementia, I'm not sure what, started <laughs> tipping her matzah in my daughter's soup. Mm-hmm. And so my daughter looks at me like horrified, like, mommy, what is going on? Why is this woman <laughs> doing this? And, and I was like, I don't know. It's okay. We'll figure it out. I'll get you new soup. Um, and then, you know, when we got home that night, she was, and I'm tucking her in. She was like, mommy, why that lady do that? And I, I was like, you know, I don't know. So mm. they're just starting to pick up on those little social norms and little differences. Mm-hmm. Um, which I've been very, you know, it's it's a good thing to bring babies into a, a memory care facility. It, it kind of takes the edge off. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, both for the residents and for myself of like, okay, I'm not, I can't fully be like in this moment because I'm looking after two tiny humans. 
Mm-hmm. So it it kind of takes the darkness out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, it, and I know it makes my mom happy and it makes the other residents happy um, to bring my kids. And they love it. They, you know, there's animals at my mom's um, home. There's, you know, dogs running through the hallways and there's mm-hmm. chickens out back. And, wow. Um, it's fun <laughs> for them. They, they cool. love it. They, there's even like a little playground. So they, they love going there. Um, and I think it, it'll be in the next few years that they realize that something is, is not quite right. Uh-huh. How do you think you've changed over the course of all this? I think that it's changed me for the better, I would hope. Of course, those, there are those dark days for me where I'm like, oh, this is awful, and I wish I was the person I was before all this. But I think it's made me a more patient person, for sure, just dealing with my mother, and sometimes she asks the same questions over and over again. And it's been interesting having babies at the same time of this because there's a lot of similarities between yeah. my mom you know and mm-hmm. two-year-olds mm-hmm. at this point um mm-hmm. of asking the same questions and getting kind of stuck on the same topics and just having that patience with them that of course I'm human and sometimes I don't have it but but it has made me a more patient person overall and just being able to say okay you know what like we need to go on vacation and obviously not everybody has the finances to do that but we can't put things off for me i want to be able to do as much as possible before this happens to me so i want to be able to travel and i want to be able to do these things that maybe i would be putting off if i didn't know i was going to have huntington's mhm what are your happiest moments with your mom I think, and this is something that I've been doing more recently, is mourning who she was, but also accepting who she is now. For a long time, I I had a really hard time just even seeing my mom. And I couldn't look at pictures of my mom now because I just was, it hurt too much because I was mourning her and mm-hmm. I'm still mourning her. But I've started to accept who she is now and try and love that person more. And it's helped a lot. It's really helped a lot. And it's just because she has this and she's not the same person she once was doesn't mean that I can't have a relationship with her, that she can't find joy in in her life. So that's been those moments where I can enjoy her for who she is right now have made me the happiest. And sometimes, you know, she surprises me. She'll have a random memory of when I was a kid and what restaurant we went to and what we ate. And it's weird how the brain works. Of like, yeah. She remembers these specific details that I don't even remember. Hmm. But then, you know, she won't remember, you know, how to put her shirt on or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's those. And also seeing my mom interact with my kids, It's that is, I know, brings her so much joy. Just being able to see my kids weekly and, and have a relationship with, with them and, and they know her and love her and, and that's kind of the great thing about toddlers is that they kind of accept you for who you are no yeah. matter what. So yeah. <laughs> they and and my mom the same way, you know. It's like mm-hmm. it's, they they have a lot in common and they're they're buddies. Um, so it's really kind of sweet to see. Yeah, that's really sweet. How often are you getting checkups now? So I just go yearly. And it's kind of just basically to see the doctors. The first visit you, you do with HD doctors, a lot of them will ask you if you want to be told when they see symptoms in you hmm. or if you just want to kind of remain unaware, which a lot of people, again, it's the same with testing. It's a super personal decision. And I would like to be told um, and I've made that very clear to my husband and to 
to my family and to my doctors that, you know, I, if you see something, I want to know. I want to start trying to figure out what's going on. So a lot of that is just to, to check me out and talk and see how I'm doing, too, because it's, being a caregiver is emotionally exhausting, but it's also knowing this extra knowledge of, you know, this is going to be you someday. So, you know, emotionally, it's a lot. And, and just, you know, talking to the doctors and seeing, you know, what, what breakthroughs are coming through, if there's any new studies I can be a part of. So that's, that's been good, just having a relationship with those people. Mm-hmm. And what's a typical day like for you now, if there is such a thing? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for my kids, they are in school now in the mornings. So 9 to 12 is kind of me time, which I haven't had in a really long time. Yeah. So it's great. I, you know, I feel like a human again. I like, can shower by myself <laughs> and like have a cup of coffee. It's like amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, just regular errands, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's stuff that comes in through for my mom that I usually have to deal with. But now I have the system pretty down to the science in terms of like paying her bills in addition to ours and mm-hmm. um, making sure everything's in order for her. And Again, you know, once or twice a week, I see my mom. So I'll pick the kids up from school and go see her. And she loves to go to Target. So <laughs> we'll go to Target or or I'll bring her over the house or I'll just kind of visit her there depending on the day and spend some time with her and maybe have some dinner and, and come home. And, and then my husband comes home around 7 and, and that's the day. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we've, we've got it kind of down to a science now where for a long time we were in chaos and now we have the paperwork and we have a protocol of how we're, we're, we're caring for her and how her needs are being met. I like how you wrote that you became a 27-year-old mom to twins. And to most of America, this doesn't sound young, but actually the average age for new moms in the U.S. is 26. And then you wrote, but this isn't most of America. This is L.A., the land of Botox and Peter Pan syndrome. Again, total unicorn describing yourself, at least in the circles we <laughs> run in. <laughs> how, have, how have the circles that you run in changed, if they've changed? And have you lost friendships? Yeah, um... I don't know if lost friendships would be appropriate. I think when you're dealing with a tragedy or a a situation like this, you kind of find out who your real friends are. So some people may disappear for a little bit because, again, you know, you're just starting your life. You're busy. You have work. You have relationships, that kind of thing. But the real true friends really kind of show themselves. And we've been surprised. We've had a lot of people who are you know, have our backs and even people that maybe even weren't even that close before all of this. And they've said, okay, you know, I have had some tragedy in my life. I can relate to you in this way. So that's been really interesting in terms Hmm. of putting our story out there, realizing that we're not alone and other people have shitty things happen to them too, but most of it isn't put on social media. Right. So, you know, some relationships change, especially when you're having kids. A lot of your single friends, I think, assume that, you're busy with kids stuff and you assume that your single friends are like busy living the life and going on vacation and, you know, brunch and all that. And I think a lot of it that we're finding is that we kind of have to meet in the middle and not assume anything and just reach out to people. And that's helped. That's helped a lot. But yeah, your, your friends change. You get closer to people going through similar situations. And that's been nice. It's an interesting thing to go through. Hmm. Well, I want to give you a chance to offer any tips that you have for folks who might be in this similar situation or any last thoughts that you have before we go. 
Yeah, I think for me, one of the biggest takeaways was that having terrible things happen is normal, unfortunately. (laughs) And as a millennial, I think it's important to realize that and realize you're not alone. And just because everybody puts out these perfect images on social media, it's it's not the case all the time. Um, And there's sometimes heavy stuff behind all that. So I think it's important to just kind of be open about it. And that's helped our family a lot. For me growing up, Huntington's was like a dirty little secret in some ways. And I don't want that for my kids. And I think being open and honest about it, it shouldn't be a secret, you know? Cancer's not a secret. So this shouldn't be either, just because it's affecting the brain. And so I guess for me, it's life goes on. And again, just because people call you a superhero doesn't mean you have to be a superhero all the time. You can have your moments of just like being snarky and you know, being yourself without having to be this, like, angelic person all the time. Amen to that. Melissa Bilchik, writer, spouse, mom to twins, caregiver for her mother, and advocate for Huntington's disease awareness. Her blog is called Grown Up Pains, subtitle, Accept the Chaos, Turn Up the Music, and Get Shit Done. We'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Melissa's blog as well as some background information on Huntington's disease. Melissa, thanks for being on the show and for sharing your story, and thank you for your brutal honesty. I love it. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. And if you're so inclined, go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, and subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. I'm Jana Panaritis. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.